Why did Bodhidharma come from the West? Bodhidharma said, the only reason I've come to China is to transmit the instantaneous teaching of the Mahayana. This mind is Buddha. This mind has no form or characteristics, no cause or effect, no tendons or bones. It's like space. All beings have Buddha nature, the Nirvana Sutra says, but it's covered by darkness from which they feel they can't escape. Our Buddha nature is awareness. To be aware and to make others aware. To realize awareness is liberation. Everything good has awareness for its root. And from this root of awareness grows the tree of all virtues and the fruit of nirvana. Beholding the mind like this is realization. Hello. Hello. Yesterday, before session started, the uh, must have been late afternoon. Andy and Nikita, our dog, and I went for a walk. And a haiku came to mind, so I thought I would share it with you. Lake disappearing, only the sound of the stream golden mist thickens. So now the mist has drifted away and we are actually seeing the sun, which is something new. So today we commemorate the first ancestor of Zen, 
the great master Bodhidharma, who brought his revolutionary teaching from India to China. We have a sculpture of Bodhidharma on the altar. We have a scroll painting of Bodhidharma to the right of the altar. So, the question, why? Why did Bodhidharma come from the West? Or what is the meaning of Bodhidharma's coming from the West? As quite a few of you know, this question appears again and again in various koan collections. Mumon Khan, the gateless gate, case five. Kyogen's man up a tree. There's a man in a tree and he's holding on to a branch with his teeth. His arms and his feet can't reach any limb or bow. He's just hanging there. And what happens? Somebody comes along and asks him, Why did Bodhidharma come from the West? Or what is the meaning of Bodhidharma's coming from the West? A very pressing question. If the person, this man in the tree, opens his mouth to answer, what happens? Hmm? He falls to his death. Evidently, it's pretty high up. If he doesn't answer, he fails to respond. So, Kyogen wants to know, what would you do? So that's one very well-known case with this question. How about Joshu? Many of you know Joshu from... He was asked, why did Bodhidharma come from the West? What did he say? in the garden. Oak tree in the garden. 
Could be pine, could be cypress, but how you answer. <laughs> that was it. Master Riddenzai, when asked, what is the meaning of Bodhidharma's coming from the West? Do you remember anyone? What he said? Meaning. If there was any meaning, he couldn't even have saved himself. Right. So this question, why or what, is really quite mysterious and very important for us to feel what it means in our own lives. We must ask, why? Why am I here? What am I here for? What is my life for? It's essential to inquire, to investigate this. And we can't ask someone in a tree. We can't ask someone sitting next to you. We have to ask it of this bodhidharma within. Why? No one else can give the answer to our deepest questions. But that's why we're here. But it's good to uh, also to know a little bit about the history. We can say the history that has come down to us from perhaps some unreliable narrators, but nonetheless, answers about who this was, what was happening, where, when, and why, as journalists are taught, who, what, when, where, and why, in the first paragraph of your story, right? Probably nobody else was ever engaged in that pursuit. But anyway, that was taught to us. And we need to do this work of trying to know before we can enter into no knowing. Otherwise, we really cannot realize the non-duality of knowing and not knowing. We have to wear out the discursive intellect. We have to become so frustrated that finally, at last, we give up on the whole enterprise. We let go completely that self that is always 
trying to figure things out. We really need to knock ourselves senseless, to surrender. And this is koan practice. It's really worth struggling. And as you may feel on this first day of session, there is an enormous struggle. Well, maybe not everybody here. Some people probably just, ah, it's so great. Okay, no problem. But it's worth struggling. We have to bring a kind of energy and conviction to our investigation. And then we find out that indeed there is no struggle at all. As we just chanted, then we can testify to the truth that self-nature is no nature. And regard the form of no form as form. The thought of no thought as thought. So, I'll give you some of the historical facts. Bodhidharma was a prince living in southern India in the 5th century and became a disciple of, anybody know? As we go through our Tedai Dempo lineage, we go through all the Sonjas, Pra, yeah, Hanyatara or Prajnatara, Sonja, the last of the Indian ancestors in that lineage chant, and then Bodhidharma. Bodhidharma was with Hanyatara for 40 years. Then he taught for 60 years more walking throughout India. So that makes him over a hundred, right? Assuming that he became a disciple past the age of one. So it was around 525 that he sailed for China. And at that age, it said he was somewhere between 120 and 150 years old. And it was quite a journey. Three years on a sailing ship. Now, Buddhist scriptures and texts had already reached China brought by earlier emissaries and by Chinese going to India and returning. 
But reading words, scriptures, commentaries, that's one thing. Experiencing this mind is Buddha is quite another. So why did Bodhidharma come on such a perilous journey? He wasn't looking for anything. He wasn't bringing anything. He said, the only reason I've come to China is to transmit the instantaneous awakening in the Mahayana, the great vehicle. This mind is Buddha. This mind has no form or characteristics, no cause or effect, no tendons, no bones, So Bodhidharma's transmission from India to China was the words many of us have heard ascribed to him, a truth beyond words and doctrines outside the scriptures directly pointing to the human mind. So we are all on a journey. Here we are. Very few of us came by ship, right? Anybody? By plane? Yes? By car? Walking? All over India, he walked. Not so many. We're all on this journey, and I think it's fair to say that people come to Daibusatsu Zendo looking for something, hoping for something. And then we find out that that seeking in itself is a great impediment. That hoping for some improvement in our irritating lives is the real problem. What about right here, now? Missing it. 
missing it. The whole thing right there. But we're like, okay, where, where is what I need to make myself better? So we really do have to abandon hope. Hope for some preferable condition. some better state of mind. Some way to feel that we are worthy of being in this life after all. We have to give it up. This is it. Sorry. Right here is the best moment. We chanted, this very place is the lotus land of purity. We don't need to take a ship to reach that place or a plane. Just one breath. And also we may not be aware of the peril of the journey we're on. We may not realize deeply for ourselves Buddha's teaching, that fundamental teaching of impermanence. We're sitting here and we think, well, let's see, it's a seven-day session and now it's... um, Oh, the day is almost over. I can get through tonight, and then six days more, I'll have the same, you know, getting better all the time, and before I know it, it will be over. Yeah. We think we have that time left. We think we have another breath. But... We are all hanging by our teeth. And any moment, a strong wind can blow us away. Just a few days before Bodhidharma's day, which is actually October 5th, is my birthday and I turned 75, and I very keenly feel this teaching of impermanence, and I very keenly feel gratitude for this recognition. In his last Teisho, before he passed away, Ada Roshi said, not knowing when we'll die is a gift from the Buddhas. When we really confront this, could it be 
that I do have another year? Maybe not. Maybe just this breath. There's truly no knowing we can fully taste, fully savor this, this, this. Well, anyway, Emperor Wu heard of the exciting arrival of a great teacher from India and asked for an audience. Now, you mostly, most of you, I think, know the story that he was rather proud of his accomplishments promoting Buddhism in China. He saw this as acquiring merit. He had sutras translated into Chinese. He built temples. He was supporting monastics. He was doing all sorts of virtuous actions. And when he heard that this teacher was coming from the very birthplace of Buddha, he thought, aha, I'm going to get some acknowledgement here for what I've been doing. And he told it all to Bodhidharma and asked, what merit have I gained? What did Bodhidharma say? No merit at all. No merit whatsoever. Now, of course, his efforts to promote Buddhism in China were not undeserving of merit. But maybe the problem was that they were promotional. And that there was this powerful ego entity involved. Self-importance. Look what I've done. Have you ever found yourself trying to make sure that others knew of your good deeds? To keep virtue under wraps is what our practice is all about. No parading it around. So in a way, you could say he was adding form and characteristics, adding cause and effect to this pure mind. Commodifying. 
what was naturally unfolding. And for many of us, too, I think there is a craving for approval. We do something and then we want to know, was it okay for you? Was it all right? Did you like what I said? How was that? How was what I made? So this emperor, or you might say the emperor Trump, is doing that all the time, right? Am I not the best? The great winner? Hmm? But everybody has some taint of that. At least there's some desire for acknowledgement in us all. And what underlies the need for accolades, praise? What underlies that? I think for many people, a deep sense of unworthiness. I can't speak for Trump, but there is this feeling for many of us, I'm the sort of person who will never amount to anything. So this craving for approval arises from a deep well of pain. We can feel it in others. We may not want to engage in it. It may make us nervous. There is a story, a Russian story, about two guys who are getting drunk together, Vladimir and Nikolai. And I've told this story before, so some of you have heard it. So they're each drinking shots of vodka. Sorry, those of you who are in AA, but this is how it goes. After a shot, Vladimir says to Nikolai, do you love me? Nikolai says, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Do you love me? Yeah, I love you. (laughs) Do you love me? Yeah, I love you. Why do you keep asking? Vladimir says, if you love me, why don't you know what hurts me? This is what everyone feels, such a deep need to be heard. What hurts me? So this craving is not something that is unknown to any of us. In the Dharma study that we held before session started, we read the translator's preface to the Diamond Sutra, Red Pine. And he said, the Buddha taught people to free themselves from suffering 
by realizing the impermanence and interdependence of everything upon which their suffering depended, including and especially themselves. Isn't that what we're doing here in session? Would you like me to repeat that? We're here to free ourselves from suffering by realizing the impermanence and interdependence of everything upon which our suffering depends, including and especially ourselves. And he goes on, the Buddha called this the realization of shunyata, emptiness, because nothing exists independently of other things. It has no nature of its own, and everything is therefore empty. And this emptiness is the true nature of reality. In all his study of the Buddha's teachings, somehow this one passed Emperor Wu by. So, his next question, after, remember the first one? Yes? For those who have forgotten, Yes. Next question he asked was really a challenge. Okay, then, what is the first principle of the holy teaching? Right? This guy, Bodhidharma, who says that my activities have no merit. No merit? Really? No merit? No merit whatsoever? Oh, wait a minute. How could this be? What merit have I acquired? No merit whatsoever. How could this be? So let's see what he really understands about Buddhism. We're still in the realm of a doctrine to be learned, right? What's the essence of what the Buddha taught? How do you answer that one? This is the question that he posed as a challenge. What is the first principle of the holy teachings? You may, some of you, recall that when Rinzai was a young monk at Obaku's monastery, he practiced there for three years, never once going to Doksan. Finally, the head monk, Bokshu, said, Why aren't you going to see the teacher? 
Rinzai said. I don't know what to ask. Bokshu said, ask the master, what is the quintessence of Buddha Dharma? What is this essence that the Buddha taught? Okay, so he went to Dogsan and began to ask, what is the quint... Before he could finish, Obaka struck him. He withdrew. The head monk then saw him and asked, how did your question go? Before I could finish speaking, Master Obaku hit me. I don't understand. Just go and ask again. This happened three times. Finally, Rinzai went back to the head monk. And he said, I was lucky to receive your compassionate guidance. You forced me to ask the question three times. Three times I was hit. I deplore deeply that my accumulated karmic impediments are preventing me from getting the profound meaning of Master Obaku's intention. I have decided to leave. Well, the story continues, and you can read all about it in the record of pilgrimages in the book of Rinzai if you have not yet done so. So Bodhidharma did not strike Emperor Wu, not even once. And yet his words to the question that the emperor asked, what is the first principle of the holy teachings? Bodhidharma's response Vast emptiness, nothing holy, were the equivalent of a blow. Emptiness, nothing holy, what are we doing here? So like most of us, the emperor was seeking something from this old Indian teacher. He was not seeking nothing, looking perhaps for a definition of the sacred that he could grasp and hold on to and follow. But whatever is holy is right here pure and simple to be experienced by each one of us directly when we let go of all our expectations, all our theories, all our ideas about it. Then to see everything as it is, not as we think it should be. As you know, even emptiness can be made into a thing. 
as soon as you have some idea of emptiness, it's as though you write on a blank sheet of paper, this is a blank sheet of paper. Emptiness? The same is true of silence. To say, how wonderful. I'm experiencing great silence. Is, of course, to break the silence. What a pity to say so, as a master said to his disciple who was describing a beautiful scene. What a pity to say so. So again, Red Pine, in his translator's preface, says, The Buddha began teaching people to view emptiness itself as empty. Not a thing to hold on to, not a concept, but purely empty. And to put the emptiness of emptiness to work in the liberation of all beings. How will you liberate the beings around you who are suffering? Oh, you'll say, have some tea. Okay. As a sutra says, emptiness, the womb of compassion. Then what? There's just this mind, this lucid awareness. There is no idea about it. Nothing can be said about it. And what then? We can hear all cries as konzeon. We can be compassionate and truly act in accordance with the way. We can know another's pain. If you love me, why don't you know what hurts me? We can, out of this complete love, know what hurts another. So as Bodhidharma put it, our Buddha nature is awareness. Awareness to see directly to hear directly, to be aware, and in so doing, to make others aware. To realize awareness is liberation. So what first principle are you seeking? What first principle of Buddhism are you seeking? As you have chanted, we seek it far away. What a pity. We are like one who, in the midst of water, 
cries and thirsts so imploringly. We seek it far away. Vast emptiness, nothing holy. What can be added to this pure awareness? Whatever we add, it is no longer vast emptiness. But Bodhidharma's response to the emperor, nothing holy, went to get against everything that he thought Buddhism was about. Of course, not only the emperor, but we too, that word about is a problem, right? Let me tell you about Buddhism. Tell me about the holy principle. And that word holy, as soon as we use it, what happens? We imagine something, right? A special place, not this place. We think, oh yeah, it has special status. It's not everyday life. Couldn't be things as they are. Really? You know, all the time, circumstances are arising that are not to our liking. Right now, what are some of those? Kavanaugh. Hmm? Kavanaugh. Indeed. My knee hurts. <laughs> knee hurts. Mm, very similar. <laughs> Can we kick him out? Do we have that ability? And where would he kick him to? Can we see the inner Kavanaugh? Can we feel that pain? Of course, many times we feel our zazen is lacking. We're drifting into daydreams, sleepiness, especially the first day of session. Our knees are becoming more painful. Our backs hurt. We think there must be some better way. Maybe change the wake-up bell to seven. Make the sittings shorter. Do you hear that? Ten minutes. (laughs) Where is that holy principle anyway? So, of course, you know, we all fall into this uh, delusion that it's out there somewhere. We don't recognize the holy when we're tripping over it. And we're always tripping over it. It's the nature of the holy. It's right here. Whatever it is that we're falling over. The problem is that like the Emperor Wu, we are abiding in dualism. That's what we think 
makes the most sense. The sacred, the profane, the pure, the defiled, the full, the empty, what we like, what we don't like. And this morning we chanted So San Zenji's Faith and Mind. The way is perfect, like vast space, with nothing wanting, nothing superfluous. It is indeed due to picking and choosing that we lose sight of its suchness. So what would you pick now? I stop talking and we get up and have kinin, right? Yeah, of course. Well, Emperor Wu could not recognize this immediacy, this holiness in Bodhidharma's words, vast emptiness, nothing holy. So he asked a third question, a rather combative question. not realizing the value of his own question. Does anybody remember this third question? like the caterpillar in Alice in Wonderland. Who are you? Who are you? Only he probably said it like this. Who the hell are you? Who are you? Giving me a hard time. Who are you? And what did Bodhidharma respond? No knowing. No knowing. I don't know. No way to know. Most extraordinary teaching. We can put it into one syllable. Hmm? Anybody?
So that cleared it all up for the emperor, right? No. He did not understand at all. So Bodhidharma left. And the story goes, he crossed the river and went into the land of Northern Way. Quite far. And he sat facing a steep rock wall for nine years. Nine years, Seshing. Later on, the emperor's advisor, Shiko, asked him, Do you know who that was? And the emperor said, I don't know. Well, Bodhidharma said, right? Say, who are you? No, no. I... If there is anything I wish for each one of us here in this session, it is to be able to say with complete honesty, No knowing. <sighs> However, when asked by Shiko, do you know who that was? And the emperor said, I don't know. Slightly different. I don't know. Who was that? Shiko said, that was the Bodhisattva Kanon, Kanzeon, the embodiment of compassion, the bearer of the seal of enlightenment. The emperor said, get him back here. <laughs> Shiko said, it will do no good. No matter who you send, he will not return even if everyone in the entire kingdom went after him, he would not return. So, to truly be this no-knowing is why we come to session, why we are sitting Sitting and sitting, no matter what, this no-knowing, no-knowing mind, this is it. This is day one of golden wind. This is nine years of this one sitting in which everything good has awareness for its root, as Bodhidharma said. And from this root of awareness, this is our Zazen, 
All right? From this root of awareness grows the tree of all virtues, grows the fruit of nirvana. Beholding the mind like this is realization. So, this is the first day. What do you say? Let's do it.